I'm Talmadge Boston, and welcome to this edition of Cross-Examining History, where we explore American history and thought leadership through conversations with best-selling authors. Today, I'm interviewing Pulitzer Prize-winning historian John Meacham about his new book, And There Was Light, Abraham Lincoln and the American Struggle, which came out October 18, 2022, and we did the interview in front of a live audience in Dallas at the George W. Bush Presidential Center on December 6, 2022. Enjoy. John Meacham doesn't need an introduction. He probably would kind of like one. Absolutely. Uh, well, I must say, when Shep said we wanted to have literary giants, but I was like, well, shit. <laughs> you know, <laughs> hold myself down here. Anyway, John jumped on an airplane early this morning to come to Dallas, and we're so glad he did. Uh, his book has uh, been on the New York Times bestseller list since it came out. It's number seven right now. Hopefully tomorrow it'll move up. But John, as Stratton mentioned, a Pulitzer Prize winner, more and more almost exclusively a presidential biographer, which for those of us who love presidential history is great news. If you haven't read his biographies of Jefferson, Jackson, George H.W. Bush, please do. But we're here today to talk about his newest one on Lincoln. I've got a lot of friends in this room. You know how crazy I am about Lincoln. There's been over 16,000 books written on Lincoln. I've read probably over 200 of them. I think this is the best book. This is the best Lincoln book, and so we're glad each of you is going to get your copy, thanks to your table host, but also our friends at Interabang Books uh, have additional copies for sale outside that John has signed, so when the program's over, we hope you'll stop and, and buy an additional copy, but John, welcome to Dallas. Thank you, thank you. Appreciate it. Uh, whenever I'm in Texas, I'm a Tennessee, and I'd like to remind y'all that if it weren't for us, you'd still be part of Spain. <laughs> so... Keep that in mind. <laughs> All right. I said that to W when he was uh, governor. He went, <laughs> said, that's pretty funny, asshole. <laughs> uh, so. Yeah, there's no media here, so be as <laughs> open as you want to be. Uh, well, John, whenever somebody's been the subject of over 16,000 books, you say, what in the world could somebody want to say new about them? But as I read your book, something that really leaped off the page was how you were so focused on the development of Lincoln's faith, particularly during his presidency. You say that his theological quest was not a small part of his presidency and that, quote, a true portrait of Lincoln as president must include our best effort to capture how he understood the concepts of God and providence. So knowing that you're a man of deep faith, John, was the desire to set the record straight on Lincoln's faith part of what inspired you to write this book? It was, and you're, you're kind. I've, I'm an Episcopalian, so to say. There are only six of us left. Uh, <laughs> the other three might be here, two outside. Um, Lincoln, the question I wanted to answer was less how did Lincoln do what he did, but why? Because if you put yourself back in his political universe, there was always a reason to do the opposite of what he did. That's what politics is, right? Politics mostly is a 51-49 thing. Uh, 
and you can talk yourself into whatever you want to talk yourself into. Uh, I'm sure no one here has ever done that, but it's, it's happened in the past. Uh, and so his persistent anti-slavery conviction, not abolitionist, and I'm sure we're going to talk about that, but anti-slavery. He believed that slavery had to be contained to the universe where it existed in the hope, which a white guy would hope, that it would be ultimately extinguished. Now, a lot hangs on that adverb of ultimately. But the reason we had a civil war is because the white South, your folks and my folks among them, believed that Lincoln was anti-slavery. They took him at his word. When did South Carolina secede? December 20th, after the election in early November. So they took him seriously. But there was... There were several different points where he easily could have compromised on that, and he didn't. So as a biographer, what you do is you go in search of the why. What was the factor in the matrix that made him stand by this anti-slavery conviction at the cost of a war that killed 750,000 people? Uh, We used to think it was 600. Demographers now think it was 750. We were a country of 30 million. So think about that. Um, And the answer is, he had developed a sense of conscience. He was informed by, of all things, anti-slavery Kentucky Baptists. If you don't believe in providence, I submit to you that Abraham Lincoln was the child of white anti-slavery Baptists in Kentucky in the early 19th century. How many anti-slavery white Kentucky Baptists do you think there were? 500, 1,000, maybe, but two of them were Abraham Lincoln's parents and his stepmother. Excuse me. Um, So he had grown up hearing emancipation sermons. He had a revulsion against images of slavery he saw. There were economic reasons, too. His father was a poor white farmer. Poor white farmers were anti-slavery, though not egalitarian. Right, if they create, if the, the planters had an advantage, and so they wanted to take that away. But I'm a big believer in I don't care why you're doing something as long as you do the right thing. By your fruit, by their fruit, you shall know them. And so that's where Thomas Lincoln was. That's where Abraham Lincoln was uh, in the fullness of time. And one of the things, and, and Talmadge knows this better than I do. One of the tropes in Lincoln's scholarship is that he grew in office. Now, that's a phrase we've all heard, right? What that really means is you came to agree with me, right? That, that's what, when you say someone grew in office, you mean that they, they suddenly they see the wisdom of what you thought all along. Lincoln was actually remarkably consistent. He, I think the better way to put it is not that he grew as president, but that he rose to the occasion. And the occasions presented themselves to create a genuinely multi-ethnic, modern, industrial democracy. And by driven by conscience, he found utility for the greatest good, the greatest number of folks in that quest. Now, you say in your prologue that Lincoln has much to teach us in the 21st century. Given the polarization, the passionate disagreement, the differing understandings 
of reality. Per the title, and there was light, what light can Lincoln shine on us in the 21st century right now, 2022? <clears throat> so I, um, I didn't write the title. That was God. Um, but I know who to steal from. Uh, Mr. President, how are you? Jerry Turner finishing his 105th year as president. I'm so worried about you. I was talking and to you the other day. He's raising $100 billion. It's incredible. He never stops. You need to go into government. Um, we could use that. Um, so Frederick Douglass in the great speech uh, in 1852, which if you haven't read it or haven't seen it in a while, go home and use what President Bush would call the Google machine. Uh, uh, what, it, what to the slave is the 4th of July? 1852, black Americans, black orators used to be asked to speak on July 4th, but only on July 5th. Interesting. He gets up in Corinthian Hall in Rochester. He gives this remarkable speech, which he talks about slavery as an economic and cultural force. He says that the world is becoming too small. It's actually kind of a Tom Friedman thing, is that technology is, he uses the word technology, is bringing the world together so that walled cities can no longer hide their systems from the censure of the world. He says in that speech, I do not despair of this country. The fiat of the almighty, let there be light, has not yet spent its force. And as my friend Doc Rivers, uh, the Sixers coach, said in 2020, think what it takes for a black man to love America. Think what it took for Frederick Douglass, born into enslavement, escapes enslavement in Maryland, to say, I do not despair of this country. When a lot of what we would think of as white liberals, in our vernacular, William Lloyd Garrison and others, were burning copies of the Constitution because they thought the Constitution, as, as Garrison put it, was an agreement with hell and a covenant with death. And Douglass said no that in fact the Constitution had the capacity of amendment, adjustment, and reform. That in fact human beings could redeem themselves. And he, Frederick Douglass, believed in the Constitution, believed in the promise of the country. It fell to Lincoln to shed that light. And what I think he's got to teach us today is that facts matter, vote counts matter, the Constitution matters. Democracy as an idea and as a reality is still, as Churchill would say, the worst form of government except for all the others. And that there is a moral component to democracy. If I don't see you as a neighbor, if I don't see you as deserving of equal dignity and respect under the law and under custom, then I can subjugate you. I can decide I'm stronger than you. That's a form of slavery. That's a form of domination. And the entire premise of the American experiment is found in the Declaration of Independence that we are all, in fact, created equal. And it's not just, I'm not just asking us to do the right thing. That'd be great. But we, here's the thing. There's utility in doing the right thing. If I respect you, you're a hell of a lot more likely to respect me. And the story of the world is that the strong attempt to dominate those they believe are weak. 
And that works for a while. It works for a season. But the history of the world also tells us that those who are, in, who are strong today can become weak tomorrow. So isn't it better, this is what this country is about, isn't it better to put us all before the law equally and then undertake what Lincoln called the competition of an open field and a fair chance for our industry, intelligence, and enterprise? And I think that that's fundamentally the democratic lowercase d covenant. Now, when you love Lincoln, like my friend Bill Spears does, and as I do, uh, you bristle at some of the criticisms that are leveled at him. One of the criticisms is, doggone it, he was a gradual emancipationist. He was evolving. He didn't get it soon enough. And when you hear criticism like that, John, because obviously the Emancipation Proclamation didn't come till the middle of the Civil War. When you hear criticism, people saying, why wasn't he stronger sooner? What's your response? That whoever says that has never been president of the United States. Um, and again, don't listen to me, listen to Frederick Douglass, who said in one of the, you also used the Google machine, uh, the 1876 speech that Frederick Douglass gave at the dedication of the Freedmen's Monument, a monument built entirely by uh, money from black Americans on Capitol Hill, Douglass in 1876 gets up and says, viewed from the genuine abolition ground, Lincoln was tardy, cold, and indifferent. But we came to realize that he was a statesman who was bound to consult the opinion of the nation that he was leading. And we found somehow that our liberation had met in this man in this moment. Um, So I'm going to be very careful what I'm about to say. What I'm about to say is not an excuse. It's not to say, oh, wasn't the American experience great on this? So stipulate that. But we're practical people, right? The only other nation in a comparable way that had undertaken broad-scale emancipation was the British Empire in 1833, the Slavery Abolition Act. Any of your English friends love to point that out, right? Couple of things about that. One, it was 800,000 enslaved people, not 4 million. They, it was gradual. It was over a decade. They excluded India and Ceylon, where a lot of the folks were. And they compensated, not the enslaved, but the slave owners to the tune of 40% of the annual expenditure of the British government in 1833. The amount of money was so great that the British government paid off those notes. Are you ready? In 2015. So... The fact that it took Abraham Lincoln 14 months to get to the Emancipation Proclamation, I think, falls into a different context. Again, I'm not celebrating what we did, but I do think that intellectual honesty, historical honesty, compels us to recognize what the realm of the possible was for Lincoln. Um, The other... So the Emancipation Proclamation is a military order. Uh, Preliminary is issued on September 22nd, 1862. It goes into effect on January 1st, 1863. It was in large measure to ratify 
what had already unfolded with the bravery of enslaved people who had fled to Union lines, who wanted to take up arms against the Confederacy, and who did and fought incredibly bravely. He did not apply it to the border states because he could not lose Kentucky and Missouri at that point, just couldn't do it. He also believed that he was fighting a war, we were fighting a war for that constitution of which Douglas had spoken. And that constitution, he believed, was the means by which abolition had to be undertaken. Now, we see this in our own lives, right? I'm, I'm guessing there might be a divergence of political opinion in the room, perhaps. It's a possibility? Possibility. Just a possibility. So you all know when your party is in power, you're kind of in favor of executive authority. When the other guy's in power, you're like, oh, my God, they're overreaching. Right? Everyone's against executive power until they have it. And so Lincoln's belief was that unless the Constitution undertook abolition, it would not be accepted. And here's something else that I'm embarrassed I didn't know. I know there are a lot of lawyers in the room. I didn't fully understand this until I was doing this book, which is humiliating, but I'll confess to you, that American slavery was a state institution by what was called positive law. Is this familiar to everybody? It's not to me. So let me just... It's kind of old law, so go ahead and refresh our memory. Okay, all right. So, so... The Constitution, for all of its compromises with the slave power, which we all know, three-fifths compromise, fugitive slave clause, etc. 20 years on the Atlantic slave trade. It did not recognize, and James Madison took pains to make sure, it did not recognize what was called property in man. So that there was no explicit federal authorization. There was no federal claim about human enslavement. It existed in the United States by the acts of legislatures. And so when Lincoln stands up, it was called the federal consensus was the phrase. When Lincoln stands up in his first inaugural and says, you have nothing to fear from me to the South, what he meant was, I'm not going to use, I'm not going to try to abolish slavery in Congress because he did not believe he had the authority to do it. So what does he do? He fights a war, and in 1864, runs a presidential campaign on what became the 13th Amendment. That, in fact, the Constitution would abolish slavery overall. He did not impose that because he thought if he imposed it, it would backfire. It wouldn't work. And if anybody wants to second-guess him, which was what we do, I do submit would it, what would have happened to the enslaved, what would have happened to American power if a separate nation had been set up? Texas would be part of it. My Probably Tennessee would be. And the enslaved were condemned to decade upon decade upon decade of further enslavement. If Lincoln had not done what he did, if the Civil War had not turned out the way it did, and if a plan or two that Lincoln proposed along the way had been adopted, slavery would have lasted into the 20th century. I'm convinced of that. I had a physiological moment 
uh, a physical uh, reaction. You know, in the middle of the great, you know, the great 1862 annual message, which ends with that marvelous deathless paragraph that we cannot escape history. Uh, we, even we here, will be judged in spite of ourselves down to the latest generation. We shall either meanly lose or nobly save the last great hope, the last best hope of man on earth. It's the kind of thing that Sam Waterston reads and Aaron Copeland plays in the background, and it's goosebump stuff, right? That's the conclusion of a State of the Union message in which Abraham Lincoln proposed a gradual compensated plan of emancipation that explicitly would not have fully taken effect until 1900 AD. In the heart of the American canon, the President of the United States, and we also think it was his only allusion to the 20th century, was in this message. And he was willing to try to, to stop the bloodshed. He was willing to do kind of a Simpson Bowles, right? But what do we all do when we want to do serious reform? We appoint a commission and we try to make it all happen after we're gone, right? That's the way this works. That's what he proposed. And Delaware rejected it. A couple other places rejected it. And he, he pressed on. But it just, I, I, I inflict all that on you just to say, this is immensely complicated. He was not Iron Man, you know, or uh, Zeus throwing thunderbolts. And our, most of us here, our ancestors did not wake up one day in 1861 or 62 or 63 or 64 or 65 and say, you know what, I think human enslavement's a bad idea. We had to fight. People were willing to die for that. And we do ourselves no favors by pretending that's not the case. I think we all recognize that Lincoln by far was our most eloquent president and because he was such a great lawyer, he could marshal his evidence, marshal the law. And in making his argument about slavery, he would always focus first on the Declaration of Independence and less on the Constitution. He said the Declaration was an apple of gold while the Constitution was only in a frame of silver. So what caused him to, to prioritize? That's from Proverbs, as I'm sure you all know. Good Episcopalian knows the scripture here. <laughs> what caused him to prioritize? We only have one Bible. We keep it under, we keep it under the bar. <laughs> what caused him to prioritize the Declaration in making his argument as opposed to the Constitution, which you just talked about, he knew he would have to amend? This is one of the most fascinating things. So the best friend Thomas Jefferson ever had was Abraham Lincoln. Uh, Jefferson was the founder of the other party. And Lincoln grabbed on to Jefferson and adapted him to his purposes. I have a whole, one of the many things, many essays I will never write is how presidents see other presidents. It's actually worth always listen when a president talks about a predecessor because they tend to see as they wish to be seen. There's always an, a kind of an adoption because uh, they, they want some historical sanction for, for what they're doing. Um, the Declaration of Independence was a clearer statement about democracy than the Constitution was. It just is. It's better written. Uh, it's clearer. The dec I, I, this is my using 21st century 
language, but I think it's fair to say that Lincoln saw the Declaration of Independence as the mission statement and the Constitution as the user's guide. And the user's guide was necessarily more, more technical. Um, and he said, uh, 1859, uh, to a Massachusetts Democratic gathering, Lincoln wrote, all honor, it was a Jefferson's birthday thing, he wrote, all honor to Jefferson, to the man who had the coolness, forecast, and capacity. It's a great blurb, right? Coolness, forecast, and capacity to insert into a revolutionary document an eternal truth that would be forever there as a stumbling block to reappearing tyranny and oppression. Right? Beautifully rendered. He had been on this story for a long time, starting in the 1830s. Uh, I think the first time Lincoln ever saw the Declaration of Independence was in a book uh, long lost in the midst of history by William Grimshaw, which was what the most popular history of the United States in the 1820s and 30s. This is what you get when you invite me to lunch. I know it's exciting. Um, try to contain yourselves. Um, but he republishes the Declaration. It's, it runs over five pages of the book. And the poetry spoke to him. And chiefly, I think the idea spoke to him, right? Lincoln benefited from the notion that we were created equal. And he benefited from the machinery of social mobility that was available, particularly in the age of Jackson, to white guys like him. I mean, wouldn't it be accurate to say he took Thomas Jefferson's words and took them to a higher level? I think he applied them. Um, I, I, I don't know that he rhetorically took them to a higher level, but he... I mean, in application. He elevated, he, yes, and, and particularly in the Gettysburg Address, he elevates the Declaration above the Constitution. And that was a single-handed thing to do. Mm -hmm. Now, in 1858, which was four years after the Kansas-Nebraska Act and one year after the United States Supreme Court's Dred Scott decision... Abraham Lincoln ran for the United States Senate from the state of Illinois against Stephen Douglas. And during that campaign, Lincoln and Douglas debated each other seven times over the issue of whether slavery, how it should expand in the Western territories. And though he lost the election, the Lincoln-Douglas debates elevated him toward his ultimate rise to the presidency in 1860. So what was it about what was said in those debates that provided such a springboard to his political future? It connects to what we were just talking about. Stephen Douglas did not believe the Declaration of Independence applied to black people. He thought that they were like cattle and that there was, which is what Dred Scott fundamentally said. Uh, the Dred, are not citizens. The Dred Scott decision. Um, so that's what that was, that was the prevailing view of that element of American life in the late 1850s. Lincoln was radical by simply saying, this is what was radical. What was radical was Abraham Lincoln said, no, they are included in the Declaration of Independence, but I don't want them serving on juries. I don't want intermarriage. I don't want them voting. And he was seen as a crazy liberal. And our Fox would not have liked that. Right? Okay, and so what does he do? He is, is anti-slavery, but he is not an egalitarian. And I am not making Abraham Lincoln out to be Martin Luther King in a stovepipe hat. 
he believed that the depth of white racism was such that we could not have a multiracial democracy, integrated democracy. And we've done a hell of a lot over the last 100 years, 150 years or so, to try to prove him right, haven't we? This country, you know, I know we debate 1619 and 1776. This country was founded in 1965. The Immigration Act and the Voting Rights Act. That's the country we're in. We've only been doing this for about 55 years. And so that's, it's important, I think, to be, to confront this and be honest about it. The, the Lincoln-Douglas debates, Lincoln stakes out this position and he's staking it out. And I think this is somewhat, when I use this word advisedly, somewhat redemptive about this, is Lincoln spent a lot of time in the 1850s actually listening to what the white South said, which is very important, right? Sometimes people just tell you what they think on all kinds of forums. So there was a movement, Tennessee people were part of it, to create what was called the Golden Circle. And the Golden Circle was going to be formed. The center of that circle was Cuba. Havana was going to be the cultural and economic capital of a slave-based empire. The political capital would probably be Montgomery or, or Richmond, but fundamentally it was Cuba. Four presidential administrations heading into Lincoln's had tried to add Cuba to the Union, not for the cigars, tragically, but for the sugar and the possibility of producing so much, so many raw goods. They were going to take parts of Mexico. There was a, you know, the origin of the word filibuster. Filibuster means pirate. A filibuster was a privately financed military operation to take over land and territory that belonged to somebody else. William Walker of Tennessee, called the gray-eyed man of destiny, he understood hashtags, invaded Nicaragua in 1856, reinstituted slavery, which had been abolished in the Spanish Empire in 1858, falls six or eight months later. But it was a scouting mission for this idea of a golden circle. John Wilkes Booth was associated with the Knights of the Golden Circle. That was what we were looking at. And Lincoln understood this. He understood that this was not simply about slavery going into what we think of as Arizona and New Mexico, but going farther south. We know where the border is, but they didn't know where it was going to be. And in fact, that's the critical moment, I think, in American history, is in December and January of 1861, Lincoln becomes president. A perfectly rational American kind of compromise is put on the table by John Crittenden of Kentucky senior senator, he'd held every office you can think of in his 70s then, which used to be old. Um, As I get older, it seems younger and younger. Um, The idea was you you break the uh, constitutional compact. Remember, the the Congress had authority over uh, slavery only outside the existing states. The idea was to avoid civil war, you would take the Missouri Compromise Line, take it to the eastern coast of California, allow slavery to take root in Arizona, New Mexico, and let all the pressure off. 
and there'd be no civil war. So, uh, William Seward was for it. 20,000 merchants in New York signed a petition. That was most of the merchants in New York. So Wall Street functionally was for it. A, a convention of former presidents, there were about 12 of them at that point, uh, endorses it. Lincoln said no. Why? Because he was rather like Winston Churchill in May of 1940. He realized that appeasement had not worked. And he said, if we give up the, if we give this up, Charles Francis Adams was for it from Massachusetts because he thought there wouldn't be enough plantation land. So you just let it happen and you, you roll on. If we had rolled on again, I think slavery would have gone into the 20th century. So one of the central questions I asked was why? Lincoln was a 39% president. Seward was a more important guy in the party. War was at hand. If Lincoln had simply been a politician, he would have taken the deal. Because that's what we did, right? That's what Henry Clay, his great hero, used to do. He said no because he saw that there were some lines beyond which you could not go. And I think it's like what, when Churchill on the 10th of May, 1940, said, I felt as if I were walking with destiny and all my life had been but preparation for this hour and for this trial. I was sure I should not fail. Not everybody was sure of that. Now, one of the really interesting parts of this very interesting book was the 1860 election. And one of the people who Lincoln beat was John Crittenden, who at the time was vice president of the United States. Breckenridge. And Crittenden was a Democrat, and Lincoln was a Republican. And so when it was time to certify the election results, that was up to Vice President Crittenden. Of course, you read that and you think about January 6, 2021. So was there any doubt at the time, John, as to whether Crittenden was going to do the right thing and certify the results? Yeah, I think you mean Breckenridge. I mean Breckenridge, I'm sorry. That's Breckenridge. Right. That's right. I they misspoke. All, they all look alike. Uh, all those guys with mutton chops, you know. Um, one of the great moments, again, another great moment in American history. Um, so Lincoln is in Springfield. Seward is writing him letters about assassination. He's getting lots of assassination threats. As, as we know, he had to sneak into the Capitol. Uh, they were going to try to kill him in Baltimore. Uh, there were threats to disrupt the inauguration. Uh, significant, uh, Henry Wise, the former governor of Virginia, uh, threatening to raise 20,000 men and march into Washington. They were going to seize the, seize the archives, seize the Capitol, uh, install Jefferson Davis as president of the United States. Um, there were congressional hearings about this unfolding um, in real time. Lincoln, interestingly, the lawyer in Lincoln saw that, as he put it, our point of greatest danger is the certification of the Electoral College. And Breckinridge was under, was being asked to decert, not to certify, uh, thereby kicking it to the House where the Democrats, which was the, which was the plan January 6th, right? The plan was to create so much chaos they would have to go to the House, which has a unit rule, and Republicans controlled uh, 25 delegations, 26 delegations. Um, that was the unfolding plot in 1861. This was February 12th, I think. 
Lincoln's birthday, actually. Um, Breckinridge, who became a Confederate general and a Confederate Secretary of War, said no, rather like Vice President Pence. He said, I have sworn an oath to this Constitution. I'm going to leave, but at the moment, my loyalty lies to that oath. And it's a reminder of how fragile this experiment is. It's a reminder that if you send people to the pinnacle of power who do not see a larger duty except to their own perpetuation of power, then the constitutional experiment's not going to work. And as Wellington said of Waterloo, it's the closest run thing you ever saw in your life. And that was true in 1860, 61. I think it was true two years ago. Now, you say that the 272 words contained in the Gettysburg Address, which took less than three minutes to deliver on November 19, 1863, quote, distilled decades of Lincoln's thinking and was, quote, an eloquent attempt to frame American politics as a moral understanding. So explain the synthesized power of those 272 words. I was honored. Uh, we had just had the anniversary of the Gettysburg Address, and they sweetly asked me to come up and read the Gettysburg Address. Uh, they? Whoever runs Gettysburg, I don't know. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Some nice lady, I don't know. Um, <laughs> there were people there. I mean, maybe it was just her. I don't know. Um, I'm available for parties and bar mitzvahs. You know, I just come and read speeches. Um, I'm very popular in assisted living facilities. <laughs> they love me. Have tapioca, will travel. Um, Beschloss and I have a bed. At what point will books we write go straight to large print? Um, so... Uh, I guess it's, I guess it was the Battlefield Commission, but anyway, so it was it's a wonderful occasion. Um, it was cold as it could be, and um, there it was a citizenship. Uh, that we, have y'all have y'all seen citizenship ceremonies? They're wonderful. Uh, if you haven't, take pains to go. Um, so there were these probably fifteen people. Uh, who were standing in there just freezing to death, trying to become citizens of our beloved republic. And this ceremony went on. It was like Lincoln's. It was like it went happy. It went on and on and on. And so, and there were others, other speakers uh, who spoke. Um, on and on and on. And finally, I get up. I'm the closing act to read Lincoln, and then they become citizens. And so I got up, and I took a risk, and I just said, look, I know y'all are rethinking this right now, but... <laughs> We're going to do this fast, and then you can become, become citizens. Um, it's, it's a statement of democratic faith, lowercase d. It's, a, it's, it, it's decades of what is the nature of the individual and what is the individual's relationship to both the state and one's own will. What does is, what is the, the, the good of the many require of us to give up in a social contract and what does our own individual, where does our individual initiative become individual appetite? Where is that line? That line is decided in all of our hearts and minds and souls. And we know that. 
It's thrilling and terrifying that the America that Lincoln defined in the Gettysburg Address is up to us. It's thrilling because it's like, okay, it's up to us. And it's terrifying because it's, oh, Jesus, it's up to us, right? And it's really hard. And I'm just going to take advantage of being here. I'm not a Democrat. I'm not a Republican. I have voted for both. Uh, as Talmadge mentioned, I'm President Bush's biographer. I'm this President Bush's biographer. You're going to have to wait on that one. Yeah, 43. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to die. Um, <laughs> uh you know, I, I spent 17 years on the one about 41, and it was supposed to be posthumous, but the son of a bitch wouldn't kick the bucket. <laughs> and, uh, the good news is Laura's a lot nicer than Barbara. Uh, that's damning with faint praise, but yeah. Uh, no. Uh, but I'd bring this up to President Bush Sr. I'd say, you know, it's supposed to be posthumous, sir, but, you know, he said, not going to do it. Um, Stana Carvey once said the key to doing his voice was Mr. Rogers trying to be John Wayne. So perfect, perfect. <laughs> One more thing quickly on that. I'm going to tell you a quick story about a category, very small category called great tweets. It's like French military victories, right? It's very small. Uh, but um, about six months ago, someone tweeted out that if Doris Kearns Goodwin and Mr. Rogers had had a one-night stand, I would have resulted. And... <laughs> I thought it was great. Doris was kind of pissed off. So the phone rings. It's like, Doris says, couldn't Mr. Rogers and I have had a wonderful marriage and you were the fruit of our love? I said, no, 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 sweetheart. He picked you up in the C-SPAN bar. No. So anyway, um, and she will hear somehow that I told the story here and I'll get another call. So if you know her, don't tell her. Um, what was I talking about? Gettysburg Address. Um, oh, Gettysburg Address. Yeah, so I'm not different. I believe that what we just came through in 2022 required a partisan vote if you disagreed, even if you disagreed with the policy prescriptions of that party. I thought, I, and I never in a thousand years thought I would say that. And I know that makes a lot of you, a lot of you all disagree with that. But I believe that American politics in our time is shaped by the degree to which we either affirm or dissent from the following view, which is that we had a, the consensus we had in the country from 1933 until 2017 was a consensus of the terms of debate. We had a virtual conversation between Franklin Roosevelt and Ronald Reagan. And sometimes we were over here with Reagan, George W. Bush, in whose library we sit, was over here. His father was here. Gerald Ford was here. Richard Nixon was here. LBJ and FDR were over here. President Obama was here. You know, you can, it's a fun game to play. 2017, 2016-17 blew up that conversation. And what President Biden's victory did is it restored that conversation. There are a lot of people who don't want that conversation restored. They, they don't think it's commensurate to the challenges of the country. I disagree with that. I think it is commensurate. It's not ideal, but we're talking about us. We're talking about people. And so what Lincoln was saying in the Gettysburg Address was that we all have a fundamental responsibility that we cannot suspend for reflexively partisan purposes 
to simply serve our own ends in a given cycle. Now, when you spend as many years researching or writing a book as this, you literally live with your subject. And so, and I remember Doris Kearns Goodwin, I asked her when she spoke at the Tate Lecture, why Mom. in the world, why do we need another book on Lincoln? She said, I don't know that we do. I just wanted to live with Abe and Mary Lincoln. So anyway, you got to live. You should have seen her with Mr. Rogers. <laughs> John, you got to live with Abraham Lincoln for quite a long time in order to come to the conclusions you drew in the book. So what was the best part and the worst part of living with Lincoln? The best part was watching him wrestle with his conscience and getting just enough right just enough of the time. And I do that all the time, and I don't get just enough right just enough of the time. The worst part was watching him wrestle with his conscience and get to the right thing just enough of the time because I don't do it. I'm a big believer that the function of biography and history is not to intimidate us and is not to inspire us with these otherworldly examples. To me, the power of it is that a fallen, frail, and fallible guy got something big right at a big moment. And American presidents, if they get one or two things right like that, we're going to talk about them forever. In our own lives, if we can do that, it's a pretty good run. And so some people accuse me of therefore lowering the bar or lowering our expectations or diminishing that. I don't agree. I fundamentally believe that we are all driven by this tension in our souls, really. Soul in Hebrew and Greek means breath or life between the better angels of our nature, as President Lincoln put it, and our worst instincts. And I think if we're being even remotely honest with ourselves, we know that the worst instincts tend to win out. I mean, y'all are better people than I am, but I know in my case this is true. Lincoln had that, lived with that struggle. This is a guy who into 1864, his plan of emancipation was free the enslaved, compensate the slave owners, and deport black Americans away from the American homeland because he did not believe we had the capacity to live together. So that's, you, you don't build monuments to that idea, but you do build a monument to the guy who got to the point where he wouldn't take that deal, where he would fortify Sumter, where in 1864, when he was told he was going to lose the election on August 22nd, 1864, to tell you how long ago this was, the chairman of the Republican National Committee was the editor of the New York Times, Right? We might as well be talking about Thucydides. Right? Henry J. Raymond was his name. He comes down, he says, you will lose if you do not make emancipation negotiable with the Confederacy. This is before Atlanta fell. And Lincoln said no. And that's when he wrote that famous blind memorandum saying, it now appears as if this administration will not be reelected. And if so, I have an obligation to so cooperate with the president-elect as to try to save the union between the election and the inauguration. And a President George McClellan, 
would have, I believe, negotiated a peace with the Confederacy and enslavement would have endured. You always have to ask the question, they're counterfactual, they're hypothetical, they're uncertain. But you have to ask the question, when you're going to render judgment on someone, what could have happened if things had gone differently? We've talked about the Gettysburg Address, but I want to close my questions with talking about the second inaugural address and tied back to the original thought, the importance of Lincoln's faith, uh, and particularly as it grew throughout his presidency. You say that as the war went on, he came to believe that providence made him the Lord's instrument. So how did his awareness of that crucial role impact his presidential performance. That sounds grandiose, uh, but he came to see it. It was tragic. It was difficult. He couldn't quite figure it out. But I think, again, the man in whose library we sit would say, you know, there are moments where you, you, you feel that kind of burden. Um, the most remarkable thing, I believe, ever said by an American president so that's a hyperbolic claim, right? Um, but it's true. Yeah, but, but it has the virtue of being true, as Henry Kissinger would say. Um, was when Abraham Lincoln stood on the east front of the Capitol, Saturday, March 4th, 1865, terribly muddy. There had been a terrible storm. Uh, first truly integrated crowd in Washington. Frederick Douglass was there, a lot of Union soldiers, uh, black men who had been fighting. Uh Lincoln can see his old uh, congressional boarding house off to the right where the Library of Congress now is. He says that both sides pray for an end to the war. But it may be, because the war continues, it may be that God has decided that this war, this scourge of war, will go on until every drop of blood drawn by the lash is answered by a drop of blood drawn by the sword. Now think about that for a second. An American president standing at a high secular occasion says that there is a God, like the God of Israel, so engaged in the affairs of creation that he is measuring the drops of blood to determine whether we have expiated the sin of human enslavement. It's an immensely complicated, biblical. Moses would have thought a couple of times before he said that, right? But Lincoln had come to believe it. Unimaginable, not unimaginable, very, very, very unlikely that he would have ever said anything like that in 1861. But three quarters of a million people had died. His son had died. People he knew had died. His in-laws had died on the other side. The ubiquity of death. He could smell gunpowder coming from Virginia across the White House lawn. He had to find a reason. He had to find an explanation. And what he came to was that it was a national sin and it had to be expiated. We have time for a couple of questions from the audience. Does anyone 
Yes, sir. Would you stand up, please, so everybody can hear you? Yeah, it's throughout the book, premonitions about his death. Talk about how Lincoln kind of early on was thinking. That's a great question. He did have a superstition in the 19th century uh, was ambient, right? Uh, we're in a period where uh, it's a great, it's a age of great doubt and great faith. Um, even technology, the shifting technology, when you, any great period has shifting tectonic plates, right? You know, a hundred years ago, you had radio, you had immigration, you had the rise of the second clan, you had people moving. 1920 census was the first time more Americans lived in cities than on farms. Uh, so you had a sense of dislocation. Uh, there was some of that going on uh, in the intellectual world in the 19th century. He, um, he, one of the things you have to be careful with when you do this is the dates of certain pieces of evidence, right? So when people tell you after something happened that the president told them X or Y, you know, it's like, okay, you, know, you didn't mention it before, you know? Um, so, but that's part of storytelling, right? That's part of the, the myth-making. It is very clear, this much is clear, and I think without being able to know, obviously, what Lincoln thought, it is very clear that the fact that the assassination took place on Good Friday and many Americans didn't hear the news until they were in church on Sunday on Easter. So you had this remarkable drama of a martyr who has died for the sins of the many. And the, we, we'd already had kind of an apotheosis iconography of Washington. With Lincoln, it was tripled. And also, the, I know many of you all think you've been to the longest funeral in history, probably. Um, they, it was the most complicated set of solemnities in American history. They had a service in something like 14 cities as they took the body. Um, Here's a macabre detail. They had just started using embalming fluid. Uh, and so Lincoln was one of the first people to be embalmed so that more people could pay their respects. We have time for one last question. Yes, sir. Well, yeah, uh, so he's elected president and he was whiskerless. Um, and a girl in New, uh, New York, upstate New York, I think, uh, Grace Bedell, I think was her name, um, wrote a letter. Uh, it's like sort of like your uh, Dear Virginia, There is a Santa Claus letter, that kind of thing, um, saying, I th I'm trying to get my brothers to vote for you, but they think you look poorly. Would you grow some whiskers and I might have a better chance? So like all politicians, he did it for votes. Uh <laughs> And so he grew the whiskers. I included it because, A, he met her on the way to uh, Washington, uh, and which is a sweet story. I did it because when you think about Abraham Lincoln, we think of that face. 
And we would have seen, we would remember a different face if not for that girl. And I'll leave you, leave you with this. The next time you're in Washington and you're at the Lincoln Memorial, note this. Greek temple, amazing, right? But the face, is he's not looking out heroically. He's not looking at the future. He's looking at us. It's a fascinating artistic choice. It's a war-weary, lined, almost pained face. And instead of looking out, he's looking inclined toward us. Let's give a big thank you to John Meacham for coming to Dallas. After reading John Meacham's magnificent new book on Abraham Lincoln, it's my opinion that it may be the finest biography that's ever been written about the great emancipator. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Make sure and catch all my podcasts at Spotify, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Until next time, remember, as my late great friend Bobby Bregan used to say, you can't hit the ball with a bat on your shoulder. This is Talmadge Boston of the law firm Shackelford, Bowen, McKinley, and Norton. Thanks for listening.